Well, this morning's message uh, from Psalm 146 is entitled, My Life in Praise to the King. My Life in Praise to the King. As we get started this morning, I want to ask you a question uh, that you can just think about. We won't make anyone raise their hands uh, or, or share where they're at. But the, the question would be this. This morning, is, as you came into church today, what's the state of your soul? Are you at peace? Are you filled with joy? Are you satisfied? See, life as a a Christian is not something that is lightweight. It's not something that is glib. Uh, In fact, there are many difficulties and sorrows that we go through in this life. And yet as believers, most assuredly, we are promised by God that we can still have a life of satisfaction. A life of comfort. A life of peace in God. See, God gives himself to us, and with himself, he gives us promises, and then those promises result in our lives in joy and comfort and security. And the type of joy that God gives is to be a durable joy. I think that's a really good word for it. You know, durability has the idea of something that's going to last, endurance, there's longevity to it. Uh, Durability has the idea of something that's not easily disrupted, it's not Uh, given to quickly come and go and ebb and flow. It's not something that's fragile. It's something that can weather storms. And so this morning, what we're going to begin to see from this psalm, really a psalm of praise, uh, is, is the praiseworthiness, the trustworthiness of God, and then the recognition that if God is truly our God, we can have great happiness and confidence and comfort and joy regardless of what happens in this life. And any time we come and we start talking about praise, then immediately we begin to, to realize, well, sometimes I just don't really praise the Lord as I ought. Right? Sometimes uh, it's, it's coming from a, a cold-heartedness. I just find that I think about God and I know I ought to be praising Him, but frankly, I don't really feel like it. I go to do it, it feels like dry words. There doesn't seem like there's any gas in the spiritual tank. When we struggle and we don't have praise to give or we're feeling apathetic or complacent, maybe even there's something that we're struggling with against the Lord and that begins to inhibit our praises. The, the response in Scripture is simply to come back and behold God once again. And as you behold God, if you're in Christ, then you're going to be drawn to praise him. It's just instinctive. It's what happens. And so this morning in this psalm, what we're going to see is that when you think about giving praise to God, and even as we sing praises in church, far more than eloquent words or perfect pitch, is that you understand the content that you are saying and singing and that you actually believe it. Okay, so worship happens when you understand what you're saying, what you're singing, and you believe it. And so what makes rich worship in the church is not the instrumentation, it's not the melody, it is the richness of how well God's people understand what they're singing and genuinely believe it. That's what creates a rich worship experience. So when we come to this psalm, 
If you're here this morning and you say, you know what, there are areas of my soul right now that are not at rest. I find that my peace fluctuates based upon whether how long it's been since I've read the latest headlines. You find that the turmoil of life you're engulfed in and you're struggling, then this psalm is going to minister in a very profound way to you today. This psalmist is a call very simply to praise Yahweh. It's to praise the Lord. And 24 times the psalms call God's people to praise the Lord. This section in Psalm 145 through 148 are known as the praise psalms. And these were psalms that Israel would recite every morning as part of their liturgy in the the second temple Judaism. And so this was a familiar psalm that people would sing. Most likely the background of this psalm is that it was written in a time of national decline in Israel. This was written in a time when things weren't going well in society. Our prominence is being threatened. Our freedom is being threatened. Things are not well in the nation. And this now is the response of God's people. Framed up this passage as four cues to awaken soul-satisfying praise to God. Four cues. These are helps. These are aids. Uh, This is going to stimulate praise in your heart for the Lord this morning. The first cue is is actually to do this very thing. Stir up praise for God's greatness while you can. Secondly, stop trusting in who you can see with your eyes. Thirdly, secure your hope to God's unchanging character. And fourth and finally, savor the future glorious reign of your eternal king. Let's read our passage together this morning. Psalm 146, praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh, O my soul. I will praise Yahweh as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that very day his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in Yahweh his God. Who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Who keeps faith forever. Who executes justice for the oppressed. Who gives food to the hungry. Yahweh sets the prisoners free. Yahweh opens the eyes of the blind. Yahweh lifts up those who are bowed down. Yahweh loves the righteous and Yahweh watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Yahweh will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise Yahweh. My friends, as you understand this passage this morning, I want you to to leave today understanding that durable happiness in this life, if we define happiness as joy and comfort and peace, durable happiness in this life is obtained by looking to God alone for salvation. And the first cue in this Soul-satisfying praise to God is to stir up praise for God's greatness while you can. Verse 1 begins, Praise Yahweh, praise Yahweh, O my soul. A little bit later in the service, we're actually going to sing these words. We're going to sing hallelujah. It's one of those words that maybe you know the definition of, maybe you don't, sometimes we forget. Uh, Allelu or hallelu would, would be the word for praise in Hebrew. And that little loo on the ending is actually an instruction 
saying, you all praise the Lord. So you put the, the loo on the end and that's a command. It's an imperative instructing everyone. So when you say hallelujah, you're saying, everybody, let's all praise the Lord. Now the end of that hallelujah is the shortened version of that name. Right, so if I took Benjamin's name and I called him Ben, you could take Yahweh's holy name and you call him Yah for short. That's the abbreviated version. You put it on the end of hallelujah and now you have praise the Lord. Hallelujah. So we're going to sing hallelujah at the end of this sermon. And with all of our minds, we're going to be singing, you all praise the Lord. Let's all praise the Lord together. Church, praise the Lord. And you think about praise. What is praise? It's simply telling with your lips how great something is. It's used in Genesis 12. All of Pharaoh's princes saw Sarai and they praised her to Pharaoh. Said, this is a very beautiful woman. And they began to praise her to Pharaoh. It's used of other attractive people in the Old Testament. Absalom actually was considered the most praised man in Israel for his handsome appearance. So kind of won that title for the year. The most praised man in Israel for his appearance was Absalom. People would just talk about his beauty to one another. Hey, have you seen Absalom? Yeah, man, his jawline and his brow and he's just so strapping and whatever it was that they saw as beautiful in that culture. Praising was done by the Philistines when they finally got Samson. And so they went to Dagon, their God, and they they gave praise to Dagon because Samson was handed over into their hands. And when you think of praising, it's not just something that you do about other people, but there's this little thing called self-praise, right? That's called boasting, self-praise. So when you think of the very familiar passage that you know so well in Jeremiah 9 that says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. It's let not the wise man sing praise in his wisdom. Or the mighty man essentially sing praise to himself in his might. Rather, let him who boasts, let him who praises, praise in this, that he knows the Lord. That's the only thing that you have to boast in. Why? Because everything that you have was given to you by the Lord. There's nothing you have that you didn't receive. And so boasting is foolish to be self-promoting and praising ourselves because there's nothing in us worthy of praise. It all came from him. He is the one that is worthy of praise. And so when you look at the psalmist here, I find great comfort in this. He's coaching God's people. See, when I think of how worthy God is of praise and how puny my praise is, I think that is, that is really pathetic. And then I come to the scripture and I realize God understands that and he accommodates himself to me by reminding me to praise him. So here's David. He knows his own heart. He knows the heart of God's people. And he says, although technically you shouldn't have to be reminded, I'm going to remind you, you need to boast in the Lord. You need to speak about how great he is. And he's not just coaching everyone else. Look, he's preaching to himself. Praise the Lord Oh, my soul, he says. Right, as much as I would love to say that my life is an endless praise service, it's not. Right, very often I have to say to myself, Jacob, you are dwelling on the wrong things. 
You've become faithless, and the things that you're saying are, are not in accordance with what you believe about the greatness of God. My friends, you and I need to be reminded by the congregation and by the word, and we even need to remind ourselves and preach to ourselves that it is our joy and our duty and our privilege to sing praise, to speak of the greatness of God, to boast in him. Psalmist understands that there's a brevity to this life. There's a span that we have here. It's just a hand's breadth. It is a very short life. We talk a lot here about the shortness of life because God calls us to think about how short our life is, to number our days. And what the psalmist is saying, what David is, is saying here, likely the one who penned it, we don't know for sure, is, is now a vow. I will praise my God. I'm going to praise Yahweh as long as I live. So here's what I can tell you. In five years, I don't know exactly what I'm going to be doing. There's a lot that I don't know, or 10 years, or 20 years, or 30 years. But I can tell you this. If God gives me breath, I will still be praising the Lord. Of all the uncertainties, if I, if I have cognition and I have breath, I will be singing praise to my God. See, Psalmist is saying, I can't tell you how long I'm going to live. I can't tell you how short my life is going to be. But I can tell you that I'm going to endeavor to day by day, hour by hour, as long as I live, sing praises to my God while I have been. So what we just read in Psalm 145, it begins, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. He's saying, I, I don't want there to be in my life a day that goes by where I wake up and I don't testify to the wonder and the greatness of the God who made me. See, God is worthy of all praise. He deserves all of it. It's rightly his. And one of the reasons for which God created you and put you on this globe was to testify to him. What a, what a wonderful calling that is. Part of your job on earth is simply to talk about God. That's actually fulfilling one of the reasons why he left you here. Why he made you in the first place. Why he saved you. Your mission while you're here on this globe and then what you're going to do in all of eternity is going to be to speak forth his praise. What did Paul say about your salvation? Your salvation was to the praise of his glorious grace. What's that? It's for the honor of his grace. It's for making known his grace. It's so that other people hear about God's grace through his work of salvation in you. You know, I was thinking about this. If maybe you say, hey, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm weak in praise. Well, if you're a believer, all you have to do is, is immediately turn to the Lord and start speaking and you begin to praise him. There's not a long learning curve. There's not a lot of training that you need to do. I was researching this week, not because I intend to do it, but if you want to go from couch to Iron Man, best case scenario, you probably have two years of work to get there. If you could quit your job, you might be able to train for it in a year. Right? But there's a lot of preparation to get to the point of being able to compete in that race. All you have to do to be able to praise God and sing his praises is simply to reflect on his character and open your mouth about what you see. And you're instantly praising him. And as I was saying about this, this is just instinctive. It, it would be like a sports team and you have a, a veteran player that's playing really terribly. Okay, this is the Christian that's not doing a good job praising the Lord. And what does the coach have to do with that veteran player? 
He says, hey, look, relax. Just go in there and play catch. You already know how to do it. See, if you're in Christ, this is already instinctive in you. God saved you. You know he saved you. You love him. You desire to see him glorified. All the psalmist has to do is say, you know what, praise the Lord. And when you hear that, you instantly are reminded, man, it's my joy and privilege to praise the Lord. I know how to do it and I can do it. See, we struggle with praise because of our pride. That's why I don't praise the Lord. I just take his goodness and his blessings and I think that I'm entitled to them because of who I am and what I've done. I don't praise the Lord because I, I just sometimes think I don't need him. I got where I got. I did what I did. I am who I am. Listen, Christian, it is good and fitting for you to praise your God and to tell of his excellencies. You should be in the habit of boasting to one another about the Lord, praising God's holy name to one another, praising the work that he has done in us and through us, telling of his excellencies to unbelievers as we have opportunity to testify that there is a God, he is alive, and he's in heaven above. First cue to awaken soul-satisfying praise to God is to stir up praise for God's greatness while you can. Just simply be reminded of it. Second cue is, is rather interesting here now. It, it takes an unexpected shift in this psalm. You would think that, that it would open with this call to praise, and then immediately after that would be either praise of God or a bunch of reasons to praise God. Yet instead, what we find here is a prohibition. Our second point is to stop trusting in who you can see with your eyes. The psalmist says, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. It's not the greatness of God that he extols yet. He's going to get to that. He starts with something that you need to stop doing that's going to threaten your exuberant praise. I always appreciate this because it helps me troubleshoot what's, what's wrong in my soul. Praise problem. First, be reminded to praise God. Secondly, look at in your life right now and see where you might be trusting in man and then stop doing that. That's essentially what he says. Put not your trust in princes. Saying here, do not attempt to gain from others what you are to only gain from God. Don't seek to gain from mere mortals what you are only designed to gain from God. What's a prince? Prince is royalty. Prince has power, influence, authority. Even a sense of future, right? A prince is different than an old king. A prince has kind of the whole life ahead of them to reign. So there's this idea in a prince that, that you're trusting in your future hopes. You're pegging your future hopes, your future comfort on a mere mortal. Your deliverance, your security, your safety. God speaks often about princes. Psalm 107, he pours contempt on them. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. See, Solomon's saying it's actually a trap. Trusting in a prince feels good because it's, it's someone you can actually tangibly see, someone that you could bank your future hope on. 
And so your flesh is inclined to that. Your flesh is attracted to that. It's something that you desire to do to bank your hope on that whom you can see. And yet the Proverbs say it's actually a trap. It's a baited trap. It's a snare. It doesn't look like a trap. It just looks like the normal forest floor until snap you got caught in it. See, it doesn't seem like a foolish thing to trust in the prince because after all, he's, he's here and he's powerful. And yet the Bible's saying it is the foolish place to put your trust. Why? Because in a son of man, there is no salvation. No help. A worthless place to place our trust. Israel was prone to trust in princes. Samuel did. Or said, Israel came to him and they said, Samuel, uh, we appreciate your prophetic ministry. Actually, they didn't really say that. They didn't give him any thanks. He said, Samuel, what we, what, you, what we need you to do for us is we need a king. We know the Lord is our king, but everyone else has a man to look to. And as we've thought this through, we would actually feel a lot safer if we just had a guy. We need someone whom we can trust in, flesh and blood, someone whom we can look to. The Lord said, you know what? I'm going to give them what they asked for. It was a trap. It was a snare. It wasn't to their benefit. They didn't want the unseen God of Israel. They wanted a prince who they could put physical eyes on and feel secure because of his relationship to them. Why does the psalmist say that you and I are not to trust man or fear in man? And trust and fear, by the way, are, are really just two sides of the same issue. Trust and fear. You just put an equal sign. Trusting in man and fearing man, they're the same thing. Trusting the Lord and fearing the Lord, they're the same thing. The psalmist says you don't trust in man because verse 4, when his breath departs, he returns to the earth and on that very day his plans perish. And Nasby says it's, he's a mortal man. His spirit departs. His body returns to the earth and in that very day his thoughts perish. This week I was looking up Nikola Tesla and various inventors who had a list of things that they wanted to invent. Great and grand ideas, plans, things that they were going to carry out. And then what happened? I mean, I didn't get all of that written down before I died. And I went to the grave and what happened to the plans? They're gone. Those those seeming important thoughts that I'm sure were all-consuming and exhilarating and thrilling when they came to mind, they just perished. Body went to to the ground, the soul departed, either to be with the Lord or in eternal separation from God. And all of the intentions, all of the plans, all of the thinking, all of the intellect and the reasoning and the aspirations and hopes for the future perished with those individuals. See, every prince will perish. Every, per- every prince will perish. Same reasoning God gives in Isaiah 2.22 when he's telling his people, don't be freaked out when the enemies come. He says, stop regarding man whose breath of life in his nostrils, for what account is he? It's like the Lord saying, I, I breathed breath into Adam's nostrils to give him life. All I'd have to do is, is pinch his nose and hold his mouth closed for about, three or four minutes, and Adam's gone. 
He's that fragile. That's how fragile man is. Psalm 104 says that God takes away breath from his creatures, and when he takes away their breath, they die and they become dust. Dust to dust. Ecclesiastes 3.20, I'll go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. And so my friends, if you were to try to make sense of the entire universe, your soul must trust in someone. There's no neutral position. You must trust in someone. You will trust in someone. Your heart will place your security and bank on someone. So you want to define the world in very simple terms? There are those who trust in the Lord and those who trust in men. That's it. Two categories. And so you start to think about what does it look like to trust in men, particularly princes. This would be someone who trusts in the government to be their salvation. Interesting, is it not? Just this year we had people die from a heat wave in Oregon and what was the cry that went up? The government should have prevented all of those deaths. If the government had been more on top of it, then no one would have died in a heat wave. We could have prevented that. Government must make sure that people don't die from wildfires or dying from COVID. That people who can't pay their rent will have a place to stay or people who can't buy groceries will be provided for. So you begin to understand that at the very core of it, there's this desire to have something to trust in. And oftentimes the, the government, the princes, are saying, we will provide for you. And they're finding an ally in the hearts of humans who say, I need someone to trust in. I will trust in you. Friends, the government cannot protect you from drunk drivers or catastrophic storms. They can't protect you physically. They can't guarantee your success. They can't protect your finances. They can't give you longevity in your marriage. And ultimately, they cannot give you the salvation of your souls. And so I would say, just based on my interactions with God's people, most of us understand this category. Most of us get it and we see it. It's very easy to spot in other people their trust in the government. But lately, over the last weeks, there's been a growing burden in my heart It's a more subtle trust in princes that I see that I think goes undetected at times within us. Unrepented of. I was at a school board meeting this week and parents were giving testimony on their thoughts on the efficacy of mask wearing, the efficacy of vaccines and uh, what schools should be doing in the community and how those things should look. One of the common threads was, you know, we, we need to not give in to fear and not giving in to fear means not wearing a mask or not being vaccinated or, or whatever it was they were saying. And it was amazing to me as I heard parent after parent after parent get up. I heard people talk about the fear of government overreach and the importance of standing up against unjust mandates. You know what I didn't hear a single person say? I didn't hear a single person say, I'm actually fearful of an oppressive government coming. They were saying it, but they weren't identifying it. See, it's easy to think that the, the people who are, are uh, dependent upon the government are trusting in princes. 
But what about the people who are afraid of the government? Is that not the same exact sin? Is that not trusting in princes and a fear of man that says my security and my safety and my comfort will come from a non-oppressive government? From a, from a constitutional republic? And over and over, we find that in our hearts there is a trust in princes. One of my mentors is in a conservative state and he's often telling his people, this isn't going to last very long. You're deceived if you think that the whole generation that is dying off right now that's being replaced by a generation that's been taught to hate what is good and love what is evil is not going to turn the tides. It's folly. The Lord is is in the heavens above. He does whatever he pleases. He's given over men to themselves and to their sin and to a depraved mind. And that is coming and it's happening. And our job is not to fret and worry about those things, but simply to say, we don't trust in princes. Our trust is in the Lord. My friends, you got to understand the tendency that you and I have to trust in the flesh. And so I'd ask you in the turmoil all around you, what is your focus upon? Is it more and more about righting everything wrong that you see in society? Or is it about people encountering God's truth that they might be saved? See, if that's your mission, then it really doesn't matter what's going on externally outside of you because you can bank on God doing that work anyway. Your responsibility is to share the love of Jesus, to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. See, what we can be guilty of if we're Subtly trusting in princes is to begin to fret and worry when the princes that we don't want are in power. My friends, do not trust in princes. Hear the words of David in Psalm 37. Commit your way to Yahweh. Trust in him. He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before Yahweh and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself. Don't get worked up into a frenzy. Over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil desires. Refrain from anger, forsake wrath, the passion that rises up within you at the injustice. Fret not yourself, why? Because it leads only to evil. But those who wait for Yahweh shall inherit the land, and in just a little while the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully in his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant grace. My friends, to the degree that your heart is constantly stirred up and down right now and you find yourself in a frenzy over the events around you, politically, then you are trusting in princes. This psalm is such a help. The Lord says, don't do it. The princes are going to die. And when they die, all their plans are going to go with them. If you're like me, then you say, what do I do? I need some Messiah to place my hope in. I need somewhere to go with my fears. I have them. I need someone to trust in. My soul wants a prince to trust. My soul wants a prince that's mighty and powerful, that's on my side, who's actually going to have justice and do things the right way and and uphold the same things that I want to see upheld. I need a son of man to ride on the wings of. And suddenly... Isaiah 9, 6 comes to mind. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the what shall be upon his shoulders? The government shall be upon his shoulders. 
And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince, ha ha, Prince of Peace. See, you can't trust in a human earthly prince, a mere mortal prince, and trust in the Lord as your prince. And so Psalm 146 is saying, where are you going to find your salvation? Who's going to be your help? A man whom you can see or the unseen God? My friends, this is where we turn. It's to an unseen Savior. Trusting in human princes brings a snare. But praise God, you have a son of man who's also a divine son and an heir to the throne, and in him you can fix your trust. This is what the psalmist calls us to next. Third point, secure your hope to God's unchanging character. This is what you're to hope in. You don't have to be hopeless. I don't have to be hopeless. I can feel hopeless. I get hopeless. It's because I'm looking to the wrong prince. Look at verse 5. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in Yahweh his God. Blessed. Happy. Happy. Happy is the one who has an earthly human prince on their side. No. Happy is he whose help is the God of Jacob. God of Jacob, what was that? Well, God helped Jacob over and over and over and over. There's that old-fashioned word that comes to mind, suker. He was his suker. He was his help in his stay. He was there when he had time of need. When he was desperate, the Lord came and he helped Jacob over and over and over. You want a happy life? Hope in the Lord. Trust God and get your help from him and not from men. Deuteronomy 33, happy are you, O Israel, those who are trusting in the Lord. Psalm 118, it is better to take refuge in Yahweh than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in Yahweh than to trust in princes. There it is again. Psalm 34, 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed, happy is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack whatsoever. My friends, when you begin to think about fixing your hope on God, this idea of durability comes because you realize that what you're placing your hope in can never be assailed or shaken or changed or moved. Now you begin to see how we get that little window into our heart of what we trust in. How durable is your happiness? Why be happy? Because God doesn't die. His thoughts don't perish. He's never going to end up in the ground with a a plan that he said he would accomplish and didn't. You would never be ashamed or forgotten by Yahweh. These are the ones who are happy. These are the ones who are at rest. They have a present help, which is God, and then they have an eternal hope, which is in God. Your object of trust never wanes. Because it is he, verse 6, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. So what earthly ruler do you know who, you could almost say created something beneficial, but created the world? Rulers don't do that. They were the ones who were created. See, God has unlimited power. His very power secures your eternal destiny. 
When you think about this all-powerful God, he relates to his creatures in one of two ways. God is either for you or he is against you. And if you are in Christ, then God is for you. And what that means now is that God is your salvation. He is your help. He is acting in behalf of your well-being and your good, and he is for your cause. That's comforting. And you can't apprehend it visibly around you at times. It's by faith. The psalmist says that this powerful God keeps faith forever into verse 6. What does that mean? It means that you can always count on God to keep his promises. What earthly prince is that true of? Right, sometimes the promises are made on the campaign trail. Totally disingenuine, but it just sounds really good enough to get the job, so we'll make the promise, never intending to fulfill it. That's how we're going to get the votes. Or maybe it's a promise that's made and there's every intention to fulfill it. Hey, I actually intend to, to make good on this promise, but then something prevents me and I'm just unable to do it. I lack the power. See, when God makes promises, he always fulfills them. And God's love for you is rooted in his promise. It is secured upon his unchangeable word. Never a broken promise. Never a failed word. So you might be sitting here and you're thinking, yeah, but what, what about when my life experience is really bad? If God is for me, if the God of Jacob is my help, if the Lord is my trust and my salvation, if he's the one who created heaven and earth, if, if he has all of the power and he's now for me because of Jesus, why doesn't it feel that way? Why doesn't my life match up with that? Why does it seem like the, at times, wicked are prospering and then the righteous are few in number and we're kind of huddled together and weak? Say it this way, for those who have a terrible life on this earth, in what sense is God their helper? Well, the Lord gives us a little window into how he thinks about people here. And this is absolutely tremendous. See, what we see beginning in verse 7 is that God is an advocate. He is an advocate for those who are vulnerable and those who are needy, particularly for his people. Verse 7, he executes justice for the oppressed, the hungry, the imprisoned, the blind, the bowed down, the righteous, the sojourners, the widows, and the fatherless. These are all the people that he is intent upon helping. And so what we begin to see here is what the rules are in his kingdom. He's the king. We're trusting in him. What are the rules of his kingdom? This is a place where justice and provision and freedom reign. It's not a kingdom established by a son of Adam. Verse 7, he executes justice for the oppressed. And today it gives you social clout to claim oppression. It sadly, oftentimes when that's done, what it does is it dilutes the actual meaning of the term and actual oppression that does exist. Oppression is a situation where those who are in power abuse that power and authority to harm those who are under them. Oppression is taking advantage of those. And what the scripture is saying here is that, that God executes justice for the oppressed. Why is that a comfort? Well, if you look at our justice system, what happens? It's not completely reliable. See, if Europe is in the justice system in the U.S., you're going to be exasperated. And I can remember sitting there thinking, all right, if we just get, just get one more conservative justice, it's going to uphold the Constitution on the bench. 
How well has that worked out? See, the, the Lord is the one that we have to put our hope in, and when he executes justice, it may not be in this temporary fleeting life, but he will execute justice. God is doing accounting. He's not intimidated by those who are in power. He's no respecter of persons. He looks to those who are oppressed. He knows what is right. And anytime you receive injustice in this life, if you belong to Christ, the Lord is accounting for it. It's either going to be a sin that Christ paid for because it was one of his elect, or it will be punished for eternity in hell. The Lord sees everything. He watches, he records, and he will bring justice. Not only that, but the Lord gives food to the hungry. Right? Earthly princes oftentimes promise food. If you want to host an event and have more people show up, you offer food. It always attracts people. It's just part of our nature, right? We, we like to eat. It's the way God designed us. God provides bread to his people, right? Bethlehem, the house of bread. But again, you might say, well, what about when believers starve? That happens. Right now, it's estimated 155 million people are uh, struggling in some way with food, potentially on the brink of starvation in our world, uh, which is up 20 million people from last year alone. God is the provider of all who have food, but his promise is not merely to fill your belly while you're on this earth. Remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. See, if you have bread, that was provided to you by the Lord, but ultimately he provides what you hunger for most, which is spiritual bread. Those who love God's ways and long to see them on the earth will be satisfied by God in God. Not only that, but Yahweh sets the prisoners free. Jesus is the great emancipator. Now, he's not pardoning people who are justly in prison for crimes that they've committed. That's not what he's doing. These are spiritual captives that he sets free as Wesley so beautifully penned. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thy night effused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. My friends, Jesus rescues captives. Captives of fear, captives of sin, captives of death. The slavery of Satan and his forces, he came and bound the strong man and he took the bounty which was you and me. I was a slave of sin. I was in bondage to my lusts. I was blinded by the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air, who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And Jesus came and said, I'm going to set you free. That's true of every believer. And if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. How did he do it? Well, by shining light upon your darkened eyes. Verse 8, Yahweh opens the eyes of the blind. This is referring to spiritual insight to those who lack it. Isaiah 42 says, I will lead the blind in the way that they do not know, and paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. Acts 26, 18 Jesus came and he opened eyes so that people might turn from their darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they might receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in him. My friends, if you're blind, you're in a helpless condition. You can't fix your blindness. And so God comes to your aid and he does for you what you could never do yourself. He does what you could never do for yourself. He enlightens your eyes. And not only that, but he 
lifts up those who are bowed down. Psalm 145, 14, the Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. See, the message of the gospel, those to whom God looks to, is not the mighty and the strong, but it's those who are weak. It's those who have need. Those who are weighed down, the message of the gospel is, is come ye weary and heavy laden. Come ye sinners, poor and needy. Come all and find help. Right? The idea is the sign doesn't say help wanted. The sign says free help right here. Sinners, come. Those who are bowed down with sorrows and griefs that you bear. Those who are weighed down with cares. Those who are weighed down by your sin. Jesus stands ready to help you. And you are to cast your cares upon the Lord knowing that he cares for you. When you feel like you will be crushed, your faith will not be crushed because he will lift you up. And then the psalmist says that Yahweh loves the righteous. He loves the righteous. Let this orient your thinking. I mean, what a delightful word to hear from our God. That simple song that we know, oh, how he loves you and me. Oh, how he loves you and me. He loves you. He loves me. Not because of who I am, but because of what he has done. And so when you think about how he loves you, everything that you experience on this earth passed through the hands of an all-powerful God who loves you. I don't know about you, but I need to hear that over and over and over. Because it, it utterly reorients all of my thinking to now say, I have a way to take whatever pill I have to swallow, however bitter it may taste, and I know it's coming from the God who loves me. He loves the righteous. Okay, suddenly what I thought I couldn't handle, I can now handle because I know who's giving it to me. Right? It's like why we ask our kids all the time, why does daddy discipline you? I know why I discipline them. They know why I discipline them. It's because I love them. But I want to hear them say it. It's because you love me. Why? Because I never, I never want to lack clarity in that relationship. That this pain has a purpose and it's coming to you out of a heart of love. And so for those who would be feeling vulnerable and depressed and hungry and needy, the psalmist is saying, remember the Lord loves you. And what you see right now in the short temporary life is not the ultimate reality that is coming. God loves the righteous and we can take comfort in this truth. Finally, verse 9, he just brings together a summary. Yahweh watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. This was really kind of the trifecta of the people who were the most vulnerable, the most taken advantage of, uh, the least opportunity to provide for themselves in the nation. The Lord would say in Jeremiah 49, 11, hey, leave your fatherless children. I will keep them alive and let your widows trust in me. In other words, he's saying, don't panic that you don't have the world's resources. Don't panic that you're a down and outer. Don't panic that you might be a bereaved woman that's past the age of working and doesn't have a husband to provide for her. Don't panic that you're a, a child without a father to protect you and provide for you and raise you. Don't panic that you find yourself in a nation that's not your own without property and knowing the language and the customs and you're disadvantaged and likely to be taken advantage of. The idea here is that the Lord is watching over all of those. They might be oppressed in this life, but not ultimately. And see, that's contrasted. 
It's contrasted at the end of verse 9, but unlike the way that Yahweh is watching and caring for those who can't care for themselves, the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Literally, he thwarts the way of the wicked. You know, so often what happens for us is we, we see the wicked prosper and we begin to fret because we think, okay, how's this thing going to go? I see the slippery slope. I know where this is going. I've read history. I know what's going to happen next. Right? I mean, I, I heard it at that school board meeting that I was at, the, the references to Nazi Germany and the references to the next hostile takeover and all of, all of the fears that are rising and some of those connections may or may not be legitimate. I'm not even wading into that right now. But the point would be, even so, who's going to stop that? You and what army? And particularly, if it's the Lord's will to bring it about, you're not going to stop that. So what do you do? Right here, you trust that the Lord is going to thwart the way of the wicked. He's going to bring him to ruin. He's either going to stop that process, something that you're not powerful enough to do, and no earthly prince is surely going to provide you deliverance. Or he's going to say, no, for my purposes, I'm going to allow that to flourish and thrive for a season. And we'll settle up accounts later. As I was thinking about this, even the most wicked rulers who would die the most gruesome earthly deaths still brings little comfort. It's not justice. You don't have to worry, my friends. The Lord makes an account of all these things. Proverbs 15, 9, the way of the wicked is an abomination to Yahweh. He sees it, he records it, he will settle accounts. God hates wickedness more than you or I ever could. And so how we live with peace and rest and joy, even happiness in this life, is by learning not to live by what we see around us in this life, but banking our trust in the Lord. Four cues to awaken soul, satisfying praise to God first. Stir up praise for God's greatness while you can. Just remember who he is and what he's done. It'll come out naturally when you see him. Secondly, stop trusting in who you can see with your eyes. There's probably a lot more repenting that you need to do there than you're even aware of. I know it just keeps being layer after layer after layer for me, day after day after day. It doesn't take much to disrupt that yet again. Third, secure your hope to God's unchanging character. Remind yourself of these truths. Actually, go to the scripture and remind yourself, this is how the wicked end. This is how God treats his people. These are the promises that I can expect in this life. And finally, savor the future glorious reign of your eternal king. Final point pretty much just sums up verse 10 in different words. Yahweh will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. The idea is that Yahweh is, of course, reigning right now. Psalm 47, 8, he currently reigns over the nations and he currently sits on his throne. So he's not waiting to someday ascend the throne, right? He's reigning and ruling as we speak. He's robed in majesty right now as we speak, Psalm 93. In fact, the whole earth is to rejoice because he's reigning, Psalm 97. But the idea is that the fullness of this kingdom has not come yet. See, in this reign, he's allowing worldly rulers and the prince of the power of this age. And what the psalmist is ending on here is the high note of saying, at some point, All of this is going to go away. And what I'm banking on is the one who will reign forever and ever. David's true son. 
King Jesus. The one whom God promised, I will establish your throne in a kingdom forever and ever. And look at what the text says. I love that little personal possessive pronoun. Your God in verse 10. Not a distant king, my king, my God, that's my Lord, and he's the one who will be reigning. And you think about this kingdom, I hate to break it to you, but one nation under God is not actually America. It's this coming kingdom that he's talking about. One nation under God is is the future kingdom that God reigns and rules. And this is where our citizenship is. This is what we're to live for. It's what we are to hope in. And if you are called to, then this is the kingdom that you will die for. My friends, do you understand how how refreshing this perspective and and how reorienting it is? To think that now my, my fretting and my worrying is not the society that I see around me, but rather that the glory of the Lord would be known both in testifying of God's greatness to his people and testifying of his greatness to unbelievers. Then I might be calling them to repentance to be reconciled to this king while there is still time. That They can come and be part of a kingdom that will endure forever. We come back through all of that psalm and it ends very simply where we started. Praise the Lord. Praise Yahweh. It's the instinctual reaction to a believer that contemplates God in this way is simply to offer praise. We're feeding our little baby table food now, and you know what she likes. She can't talk yet, but you, you know, put the spoon of sweet potatoes in, and what happens? There's cooing and energy and excitement and there's trying to express, I like it, some kind of a praise of those foods. The believer thinks about the greatness of God and what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ and what happens. Praise is what comes out of us. It is natural and instinctive to see the Lord in that way and then to speak about his greatness. Will you pray with me? Lord in heaven, thank you, thank you, thank you for your wonderful grace and for your mercy. Lord, this has been such a thrill to my heart this week as you have established my feet so clearly on the rock, which is your truth in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, that that what we see around us is sinking sand. It is not a a good place to put our footing. Um, And yet, Lord, we can have a durable confidence in this life, a durable happiness because of the promises that you've given Help us, Lord, to believe these things. Help us to remind one another of them. Help us not to let each other get too far down the rabbit hole in ways of thinking that are faithless and godless. Uh, Lord, that we might even be a blessing to one another as we help each other renew our perspectives and think in these ways. Lord, I pray then that that would allow us to be freed up to focus on the mission that you've actually given us, to be salt and light, Lord, in in a generation that is crooked and perverse that desperately needs to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you so much and we rejoice in the God of our salvation, the God of Jacob who has saved us. We love you. In Jesus' name.